Blog Talk Radio. On the show today, a very exciting topic. Everybody wants to experience joy. Hopefully. And joy seems like a fleeting thing for many of us. Because it's often tinged with fear and sadness and regret and all the other aspects of our daily lives that seem to interfere with just embracing joyfulness. So we're going to be talking about that on the show today and how it relates to the research and the work of uh, Renee Brown. Well, welcome to the program. If you're listening in live, um, it's Tuesday morning and broadcasting live here from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. And if you're listening to the recorded program or on iTunes, thank you very much for finding us and for participating in the show through the uh, archived programs which are all available uh, for you to look through um, dozens and dozens of shows and topics uh, going back to um, December of 2012 when the program first began. We've just crossed the threshold of 5,000 listens on the show. Um, I'm really excited to see the interest in the program and obviously there's a hunger there and uh, there's some really exciting developments happening with this show in the near future. So stay tuned for some announcements. Uh, but in the meantime, we've got a really great topic on hand today, and we're going to get right into that. Uh, just want to remind you that we do have a Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash the mind whisperer. And uh, of course, you can find all the links uh, here on our homepage on Blog Talk Radio. Well, who is Brene Brown, and why are we taking a cue from her work today to launch this discussion about joy? And gratitude. Brene Brown's a, a social uh, scientist, a psychologist, and researcher, and she calls herself a, a storytelling researcher. I think is the way she puts herself across. But she's um, researched and and, and uh, written and talked extensively on TED.com, TED Talks, and at large, and now quite popularly in the media, uh, most recently with uh, uh, on Oprah's network. Um, about the issues of uh, relating to um, vulnerability and how vulnerability um, figures into other aspects of our, our relationships and experience and, and uh, our sense of selves and our ability to to connect and to feel joy. Just very briefly, Brene Brown, uh, primarily in her research, she was looking at uh, the shame cycle. And that is, is that... Uh, very early in life, any internalized uh, experiences of shame make us very averse to vulnerability. And there's a protective aspect there in terms of human development. 
that vulnerability and connection, which is so vital and so key to our experience and to really our survival, to connect and bond with other human beings, starting with our own caregivers and our mother and our uh, other caregivers and parents and um, and then developing our social and emotional learning with other um, kids and learning to relate and having an intact sense of self-worth and confidence to be able to go out and, and engage with other people. And if that is compromised by shame or trauma early in life, then it makes us very averse to being vulnerable. And vulnerability is simply the um, openness, the um, willing to, be, to, to willingness to be loved and seen as, as who we are in any given moment. And so a protectiveness can um, take over there. And we armor ourselves against uh, being transparent, open human beings. And the problem there, of course, being that in its place, we develop this false personality, which is the our protectiveness, the way that we want to be seen by the world. But of course, it's not genuine, and we know it's not genuine. So we're hiding our true emotions and our feelings, not only from our family or our parents, but from the people around us at large who um, may actually give us some sense of um, relief from having to prop up um, what we think people want to see, what we think will be accepted for, and, ex- and instead we can just genuinely be ourselves. So Brene Brown's research talks a lot about that and how what um, how that sets us up um, to be averse to that kind of uh, vulnerability. Because in the end what happens is um, we don't get loved for who we truly are. We have this sense of having a hidden personality or a reality from other people. And... Um, and we're constantly second-guessing ourselves, and we, we cheat ourselves out of the genuine loving interactions um, and openness that we might otherwise have. And, of course, that reinforces the shame. So how does that relate to today and to joy? Well, I'm taking a cue from Brittany Brown's recent uh, work, and she's got a book out called Daring Greatly. And just from her um, statements um, around her research and her work, the way that she's presenting the connection between vulnerability and joy and gratitude. And basically her equation is this, is that if we have low tolerance for vulnerability, it makes joy foreboding. Now, another way she said this uh, is that um, we dress rehearse tra- uh, tragedy to beat vulnerability to the punch. So let's unpack that statement and figure out what she's trying to say there. And essentially what she's saying is is that our is that the fear that gets triggered in our moment of experiencing joy or being in the moment of of what may come next, that somehow we can't that joy won't be sustained or some you know, there's a sense of doom is going to enter in at that moment, makes us again triggers us into on on many levels into that protective mode. That we that we don't feel comfortable in that moment of of vulnerability to experience a tender moment, for example, and um, so we, in anticipation of that paranoia about tragedy entering in and ripping it away from us, we have we 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 cannot accept joy. So that's what she means by joy becomes foreboding. So let's give a practical example of this, and she you know she describes any parent who's lovingly staring at their child and texting the child in at night, and you have that unconditional love for your child and appreciation, and and there's a, a real soft tenderness there. And 
it's made more delicate by the fact that this is a fragile, vulnerable being, and you want this being to live forever, etc. And um, so, some of your thoughts turn paranoid to what if your child gets sick, or what if your child gets injured, or you know something worse and kidnapped, or etc., cetera, etc., cetera, an accident. And so, it makes the thought of the the, the feeling of joy um, intolerable in that moment because suddenly it rips it away, and then we equate in that traumatized moment of that thought, that joy is not safe. Joy becomes foreboding. This is a really interesting notion, and of course it's very much in line with things I've talked about previously on this program. And I want to relate it in a more, if you'll forgive the term, a more spiritual way. When I mean spiritual, I don't mean spiritual in um, opposition or in uh, exclusion of um, psychological principles, um, quite to the contrary. This show is what I call spiritual psychology in daily life. But I want to relate it more in terms of uh, mindfulness and in terms of um, working with the nature of mind and um, in, in that sense, the, the spiritual um, relationship between these behavioral aspects how the mind works, and relating it to consciousness in the scheme of um, our consciousness in, as, as beings moving in the universe, and how those generalizable principles can, um, can relate to all of us, and how we can work with them, and, and have perspective on ourselves as a sort of mindful awareness of consciousness itself and ego, and how this affects us. So putting it into a slightly different context, and Brene Brown is, is really looking at it in terms of um, relational or interrelational principles of um, dynamics of uh, intimacy and uh, emotional intelligence and et cetera. So what do I mean by all that? Well, a very simple uh, anecdote that's from my life, which is very emotional and especially very timely for me. And I've talked about this previously on the program. Uh, I had about... Nine years ago, um, I went to a local shelter here, the SBCA, and um, was really touched by a dog there that um, I guess had been really looked over. He was a really big dog, and he looked quite menacing. And he'd been there for a few months, and it seemed nobody would adopt this dog. He was a Rottweiler mix. Rottweiler and Mastiff, actually, a very large dog. And even though he had been screened as being very friendly and kid-friendly and dog-friendly, I suppose he was just looked like too much to handle for the average person. So me being my reckless, fearless, whatever you want to call it, self, uh, I took it upon myself to um, check it out and take the challenge up. And uh, I like big dogs. And I was wanting a bigger dog. And uh, so Maximus was his name, and I took him on, and he was uh, a wonderful animal and companion for nine years and um, an extremely challenging, you know, with uh, fear behavior and aggression, and um, but with underlying great personality. And I just recently had to let him go because he got very sick, and his time had come, and he was over 11 years old and something quite uh, systemic and... Um, in the end, terminal took over cancer, perhaps. 
Uh, we don't know, but his system shut down very quickly. And so the thing that I had feared all along that day, from the moment I got this dog and he came into my life, um, did finally materialize. So it's not like I was anticipating something that was purely paranoid fantasy. I knew one day somehow this dog would not be around. So right away I want to introduce the the um, essential principle or teaching of Buddhism, which is a, which is you know again characterized as a religion, but what it really is is a 2,500 year old or more practice of psychology, the understanding the nature of mind, the workings of mind and consciousness through self inquiry through contemplative practice, which means meditation. And so the central tenet of the Buddhist teachings goes back to what the Buddha called the Four Noble Truths, is that human beings suffer because we wrestle with impermanence. And that is the thing that uh, initially struck the Buddha uh, and, and who was a person named Siddhartha Gautama, who was a prince in India, and he lived in great affluence in a walled um, compound, if you will, estate, and um, felt dissatisfied and restless, and one day took uh, a walk outside of the grounds of the estate and went out and really experienced life as it really truly was and saw sickness and death and old age and hardship. And so this fundamental quality that we are all, even with a good life, eventually going to get old and perhaps frail or worse, sick and have ill health in our declining years, and we're going to watch or experience it ourselves, um, suffering and decline. And there's also tragedy, and so life is impermanent. And of course, this is something that even uh, at that point, getting this dog was very apparent to me. But in some ways, the instinct to an animal is um, to again make a connection and to care for another being and to feel that compassion and empathy and um, joy of um, you know in that case rescuing a dog but it is at the same time tinged with this immediate sense of foreboding um, because at some point that's going to not sustain itself the dog's going to get sick or die or at some point, and big dogs have shorter lifespans. So there's this paradox built in. And my initial reaction to that, as I started to bond with this dog, is to, to, to recoil, to resist and to shut down that feeling. Again, to dress for her as tragedy. Um, because somehow I felt that to purely reside in the joy of having this dog in my life was going to be taken away from me. Purely by that anticipating feeling of this is going to end. And not wanting to feel that. And so the vulnerability in that moment became, at the the, the onset, compromised. How do I open and feel this tenderness and this connection and sensitivity to to this animal who's dependent on me and one day will die? And, and feel the joy of that relationship and connection without feeling the fear 
and the dread of having to go through that one day. And anyone who's owned an animal, um, let alone being a parent, can understand that. It's, it's more heightened, I would say, probably with an animal in a way, because you can't count on longevity, even at the healthiest. At least with a child, you know, they'll grow up into a long adult life, unless there's some pre-condition there. With an animal, you know their lifespan is built in to a maximum of 15 to 20 years. In this case, you know, 10, 11 years. And so this paradox is, you know, uh, uh, very emblematic of uh, human nature and the, and, the, and the nature of mind and, and ego wrestling with these with impermanence. And so I did something that I was wanting, daring myself to do, perhaps in taking on Max. And that was, I took the moment to reflect and said, what will happen if I just completely soften into that painful thought? What if I just don't resist that thought and really connect to the feeling of letting him go one day and how sad that will be? And something transformative happened to me in that moment. And I know that sounds slightly facetious or maybe just um, Pollyanna, you know, or that I'm somehow trying to, you know, curry sort of spiritual self-aggrandizement out of that. But it really was a genuine thing to wrestle with this pain of how do I? How am I going to live with this animal in my life, knowing one day he's, I'm going to have to let him go? And so I allowed myself to go there, and I allowed myself to lean into that thought and into that grief. And as it is with that kind of practice and habit, something very interesting happened. And the deepening into that tender moment, the sad, scary thought of letting this animal go and seeing him suffer, allowed me to deepen my connection with him. And it made me dig deeper into my desire to be caring and empathetic and to experience joy. Now, I'm not saying that all went perfectly, you know, and at the time, and as always, you know, we have our um, limitations and we're all on our own paths to discovering ourselves and to improving our our lives through these kind of awarenesses. But for where I was, it was a very crucial part of my own personal and spiritual development. And it taught me something very profound about vulnerability. So to go back to Brene Brown's statement, and she says, a low tolerance to vulnerability makes joy foreboding. Then what's the antidote? The antidote is, if we increase our tolerance for vulnerability, then we increase, increase our capacity for joy. We increase our desire and our readiness to embrace joy and to receive joy into our lives. And the key component, which I think is very profound here, and again, Brene um, puts in as a cornerstone of presenting her research and her findings is consistently throughout gratitude is the key piece here that's the key to the lock to unlocking joy and over and over again in the interviews that she did for a dozen years of research she found that 
the people who had led the most joyful lives, the ones who practiced the most gratitude. Now, what do we mean by that? We don't just mean paying lip service and say, oh, gee, you know, cross our fingers, I'm so happy, I'm so grateful, um, please don't let anything go wrong. That's, again, dress rehearsing for tragedy. That's That's trying to shore up, like knocking on wood. But there's a difference between that and just um, accepting the good things in life um, as something that's a gift and that is impermanent and could be taken away. And there's nothing wrong with living in that space in the moment. And this is where I want to bring it back to um, looking at it in, in terms of mindfulness and in a contemplative way, Buddhist or not. But the Buddhist teaching here is uh, very helpful because of the way that those principles are organized in the Buddhist teachings. And what I want to introduce here to what Brene Brown is presenting in this more spiritual sense is the idea of, of non-attachment. And so one of the things she brings up uh, in a discussion that she recently had with Oprah um, was how one of the persons she um, interviewed had lost his longtime spouse in a car accident. 60 years old, his wife of 40 years was killed in a car accident, and how he had said throughout his life he had sort of lived in the middle, where he didn't want to have too many highs and too many lows. In case things didn't go well in his life, he didn't want to be too high on on uh, the good times and embrace the joy too much, because then if things became tragic, he wouldn't be able to handle it. And um, when his wife was taken away from him, he expressed to her that, you know, he'd wished he had, in her words, leaned in more to the joyful moments because it didn't make a difference. You know, uh, uh, withholding joy from himself as a way of trying to save up like a battery, you know, to, to keep the charge alive, to defend against tragedy later on, didn't help him at all. And in fact, the simple pleasures and his joys all the way along with his wife that he had really just... Um, really embraced them and really, as she says, softened into those moments along the way, um, wouldn't take away the sense of tragedy, but at least it would have been balanced with having at least enjoyed all those moments fully without a sense of kind of holding off on them to shore up against uh, sadness or um, loss. And so... Non-attachment is an interesting counterpoint to that, to that, uh, or if I, I would say a, an alteration to that. Um, what she might be saying is a negative about his approach that, of being in the middle. And I think in his case, there is a sense of scarcity there about his approach. You don't want to feel too much. But there's a difference between, you know, kind of. Uh, resisting life in a way, the joy because you fear there's going to be sadness later, and not attaching to experience. And so, you know, as a closing in, in, you know, in this discussion today, I think when I reflect on her work and what Brene Brown is presenting, vulnerability is really about beingness. It is really about being in the now, in the moment, with whatever is happening, and without attaching to it in any way, but still allowing it to be what it is, to fully engage reality with our whole selves. 
and to train ourselves to be able to do that without it defining who we are. In other words, that that can become an experience in one moment and we embrace it with the fullness of, of experience like any other moment. Letting my dog go several weeks ago was one of the most painful things I've ever done. But I knew it was going to happen. And knowing it was going to happen and fully allowing that thought without fearing it, without pushing it away, allowed me to experience a connection with my dog all the way through his life. And when that moment came, my courage surprised me. That, that my willingness to let him go was not as overwhelming uh, or, or not as um, scary to me as, as I might have thought because I accepted it. And I was able to be present and let him go and be in that moment of, of watching his life end in my hands without it um, overwhelming me. And it was incredibly uh, grief-stricken for me. I mean, I'm still recovering from it weeks later. He was, uh, he's been my sole companion. And, um, but it's that sense of not attaching to the moment, not attaching to the meaning of what, what that is in that moment, which in a way distances us from being imminently experienced in the world. It's interesting, I just came across some writings from Jean-Paul Sartre, and one of the things he talks about is that our sense of reality is about being in the worldness. And that's how we find our engagement in the world, is by being in the world. That's our phenomenological relationship to it. Phenomenological is just a very expensive word for experience perception experience. So it's really a lesson in how to be in a moment without letting that moment become us or identifying with that moment. To receive joy, to experience joy, to be grateful for what is happening in any way because it is an experience, because we're alive. And I think that that's the fundamental principle here is that these moments of joy or of loss and grief all remind us that we are alive and that life itself is a precious gift. And never to forget and to appreciate that uh, fundamental um, uh, reality, the defining principle that we are alive, we have consciousness and that life itself is a precious gift and we should never take it for granted. So even in our deepest moments of sorrow and loss and tragedy and and hurt, we realize how precious a gift that life is. And it's that vulnerability that's the paradox that holds the fear and what's triggering the fear is the ego not wanting to experience that negative emotion, not wanting to contemplate impermanence. Just before I end the show today, I wanted to refer you to a terrific book by an author um, I've been back to many times, 
um, who uh, has written a series of books about Buddhism and psychology. And the one I'm referring to is called um, How to Fall to Pieces Without Falling Apart. And the author's name is Mark Epstein. He's an uh, American uh, psychiatrist and and Buddhist uh, practitioner. And in that book, he talks about the difference between trying to sort of, again, build up our character in the Western kind of psychology practice to to build our confidence and our identity and, oh, you know, we're going to die one day, but just carry on, you know. And the difference between that and embracing what he calls the void, recognizing that we cannot stop time, we cannot stop disease, that our lives will end one day, that impermanence is a fact of life, and that we come from the void and we go back to the void. It's embracing that mystery, embracing in what the Buddhist practice they call emptiness. Well, there you go. I'm out of time, and it's been a very full program today. Always surprises me where we get to in these programs. It's been a joy to host you here on the Mind Whisper. My name is Michael Gordon. Please come back, re-listen to the program, tell your friends, visit the Facebook page, and we'll talk to you next time on the Mind Whisperer.